Good morning and welcome. We are so glad that you are here with us. I am Christopher Mack, as referenced earlier, uh, with the Enneagram workshop, and uh, glad that you are here and would love to dive into our text. This is a Sunday that is often called Good Shepherd Sunday. In many Christian streams of tradition, the fourth Sunday after Easter is reserved for that. So while we're looking at the book of Acts, I also want us to be thinking about the themes of a good shepherd and what that means. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, we often see shepherds talked about as uh, religious, political, and social leaders, and sometimes that plays out really well, and other times that seems like that's coercive and manipulative, that that's something that is abused, that these relationships are not mutually flourishing and beneficial for the community. And so there are these questions that uh, our sacred texts bring us and stories with long memories. In fact, if you've ever done one of those, like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year uh, sort of thing, there's lots of places where you probably opted out. Um, but one of them... Uh, was probably in Kings or in Chronicles. And if you got that far already, just like pat yourself on the shoulder, you know, you did really well. That's amazing. Uh, but part of what you may have noticed, A, when you get to First Chronicles is that there's a lot of genealogies that just go on and on and on. But then when you get through that, if you were at all paying attention when you were reading Kings, you see that in uh, Chronicles, you're like, wait a minute, I've re- just read like a lot of these stories because Chronicles is even just retelling the story of some of these leaders and how either they were good shepherds or perhaps how they failed to live in to Torah. And Torah not being the sense of this restrictive, like, oh, you must follow the letter of the law, but really being the sense of God's dream for humanity, that there are better ways that we can learn to live in community and relationship with one another. And are we following that arc and trajectory, or have we lost the plot and started to mimic all the other communities around us? And so throughout all of our sacred texts, there are these questions around shepherds, and today we're invited to consider what might be and who might be a good shepherd. So first off, I want to just ask you to think, who is someone that has chosen family for you? I'm not going to do the usual like share with every person, but I just want you to think about that. Who is someone that for you, you might say, we, we don't actually sh- share a 23andMe sort of connection, but there are so many other ways that our lives are interwoven, that the tapestry of who we are, that the caregiving, the sense of uh, in this collectively together that we share um, has enriched my life and they have enriched uh, and I've been able to enrich theirs as well. Just think about some people or a person who might be that for you or perhaps whom you might be that for someone else. Because in our text today, we've read about Tabitha, who lives in Joppa, and Tabitha is her Aramaic or Hebrew name, and Dorcas is her Greek name, and both of those are variations of the word gazelle. And 
So I don't know what that means. Like I, I kind of all of a sudden, there are lots of gazelles in that region, but I'm like, I wonder what, what was leaning into that. Was there some sort of fluidity, some dynamism? What's, what's happening uh, with this woman? Uh, but she has, she's in this port city and is likely navigating two different cultural identities and understandings. What does it mean to be in a Roman world and to have this Greek understanding and as well to want to be anchored to your Hebrew identity. And so she's also navigating that through this. And so our first movement that I want us to think through is growing good together, showing up for mutual flourishing. I referenced just a few moments ago that many times in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the correction or the lesson that is meant to be learned is that uh, the leadership that was exercised became self-serving. Rather than being self-giving, it became all about how to promote itself, how to ensure its own power, security, esteem, uh, and usually at the expense of others in the community. That in order to stay in power, there were people that had to pay a price for that power, often through violence, often through loss of humanity or dignity or rights. And so the first movement in what it looks like to grow, growing good together is that we are showing up for mutual flourishing. Our story starts off in Acts 9.36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. First off, is just an interesting aside, this is the only place in the entire Christian New Testament where just a singular woman is given the explicit name disciple. Now, there are lots of other places where women and men are collectively disciples, and there are lots of other places where we see women clearly fulfilling the roles and the responsibilities of what it meant to be a disciple. But this is the only place in the Christian Testament where specifically one woman is singled out as this is a disciple. So that's already like very interesting to me. Like, oh, I'm paying attention to this. There's something unique about this person. And though we didn't read earlier, just a few verses before this, Peter has been nearby and he's going to enter our text uh, in just a second again. Uh, And he's healing someone who has been paralyzed, bedridden for eight years. And that person is just like, and yes, he's just like some guy, whatever, don't worry about him. But God showed up, he's healed. Wasn't that awesome? And when we're introduced to this next healing, instead of just saying like, yeah, yeah, there's some person, yada, 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 we're given the distinct privilege, this distinct sort of highlighting of her as this disciple. And we're again also introduced to the sense that she's navigating these two identities, but further, she is devoted to these good works and acts of charity. She is having this transformative, this redemptive, this co-working goodness in her community. Evelyn Brooks Higginbottom, in reflecting on the black church, and particularly the black church in the first part of the 20th century, states the following, black woman even drew upon the Bible, the most respected source within their community to fight for women's rights in the church and society at large. During the late 19th century, they developed a distinct discourse of resistance, a feminist theology. 
She continues, more often, however, their efforts represented not necessarily dramatic protests, but everyday forms of resistance to oppression and demoralization. Largely through the fundraising efforts of women, the black church built schools, provided clothes and food to the poor people, established old folks' homes and orphanages, and made available a host of needed social welfare services. She's highlighting that even at a time uh, within the black church tradition, where often it was primarily, if not exclusively, men who were the good shepherds, the pastors, the leaders, that it was really these women who were movers and shakers and were actually doing the work, the good works within their community uh, to help it flourish during that time. Our passage continues in verses 37 through 38. At that time, she, being Tabitha, became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydo was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, please come to us without delay. So our story has taken a huge turn. This woman who's having this incredible impact in her community, who is doing such immense good, becomes ill, and she dies. We don't know what she became ill of, why she died. We just know that that is what happened. And we do get the sense to see, and that's just not it. Again, there's all these extra details that uh, the author of Acts is giving us. It's not like, and she died, and then here's Peter, and the women are there, and we're seeing them taking care of her, preparing her body, uh, some see this as all of the funeral rites, and some sort of think that they've done everything but anoint her, which might mean that they're still holding out hope that possibly this isn't the end of her story, which might cohere well with this sense of like, oh, hey, but Peter's near, and we heard that there was a guy who'd been in bed and couldn't walk for eight years, and Peter showed up, and God through Peter showed up, and now that man can walk? Let's send some people without delay to him and tell him to get here, if at all possible, to perhaps see what God might be up to, to perhaps see if death isn't the final answer, the final say-so in this particular story. So verse 39, Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. So Peter hears the cry. He comes immediately in response to that. He's ushered up to this upper room. Again, if we're thinking about the sacred text of the Hebrew scriptures, we might think of other healings that have happened through Elijah and Elisha that are in the upper room uh, there. We may also think of Peter and the experiences that he's had with Jesus in an upper room and the way that he has seen uh, God serve him through this person, Jesus, uh, in some very unique ways there. And what does it look like to be a leader? And so Peter enters this space and there are women there. There are these widows who are mourning. They are lamenting. They are weeping this great loss 
for their community. And showing the clothing, and the, the strong implication here, right, is that this is clothing that at the very least perhaps Tabitha made for them. Some have questioned if perhaps maybe this wasn't some sort of co-op that's working together and they would all produce clothing. So maybe it is, this is our collective work, but, but see what she helped us organize, see the great things we were able to do together. And, and they are grief stricken, uh, as he, sh- as they show this to Peter. Our next movement or when we're talking about this, we're thinking about what does it mean to show up for mutual flourishing? Some questions to consider. How do you show up for your own grief? When you find yourself sidelined by injustice or the loss of someone or perhaps the loss of a dream or the loss of a responsibility or a role that you loved, how, how do you show up for that grief? Uh, I had an experience earlier this week and I was overcome with a sense of both anger and sadness. And I thought like, I'm going to be preaching on this. I probably need to like actually do something that like I would suggest. Like I'm going to take some time and be silent and pray and uh, do contemplative prayer like David has taught us that we can do. Uh, maybe that's a better way for me to show up uh, to the grief that I'm feeling uh, than some of the perhaps numbing or just detaching uh, ways that I was thinking about doing in that moment. How do we show up for the grief of others? We see here uh, that not only are these this collective group of widows grieving, but they have gathered together to do this. They are supporting one another in this important work. Who are the people in your life whether they are actual family or chosen family, uh, that you can show up for and with and alongside. And perhaps how might you invite others to show up for you when times are challenging? Are there ways that you can identify that you need those people that you think of as chosen family to be there for you and to help you through those challenging times? The next movement of growing good together is a practice of consenting to presence. Consenting to presence. Acts 9 verse 40 says, Peter put all of them outside. So he's just been, probably I would imagine, at least I would feel incredibly overwhelmed with all of these women who are like just lamenting and in tears and they're showing him, see all the things that we did together, all of the things that she did for us and that we were able to collectively uh, create with one another. And Peter now asks all of them to leave. We're not really sure what that's about. Perhaps uh, this might be a movement of Peter not wanting them to overly glorify himself. I don't know. You know, I really don't know what's in Peter's imagination. I could imagine this will be, we've already read the text, so we know where it's headed. This will be the first time that Peter has ever like had someone rise to life uh, with him. So I could also just imagine like, I don't have a clue what's going to happen here. Right? I could imagine Peter just saying, I don't know what's going to be the next thing. And so I have showed up. I want the mutual flourishing uh, of this community, but I don't really know what to expect. And who knows, depending on how this goes, uh, Peter personally, these widows that are feeling this great grief might be experiencing even more disappointment or frustration. 
And so I don't know that that's why he put them out, but I could imagine that maybe just like, let me just have some time. We'll, we'll see what's going to happen here. Uh, and then he kneels down and he prays. I see this as a movement of engaging and consenting to God's presence. I can remember uh, when I was a teenager in high school, um, I started to sense that my vocation might be in ministry. And I was at a youth camp, and at this youth camp, they, it was one of these ones where it's like, what are going to be the big decisions that you're going to make? And one of those um, was that you could say that, like, I'm going into vocational ministry. And so I, I walked down the aisle. This is a very Baptist or evangelical kind of thing, right? I, I walked down the aisle and like at the front of the congregation or of the, of the camp, there are all the different like youth pastors and youth workers. And so I like make a beeline right to my youth minister. And I shared with him, like, I, I think I'm going to go into ministry. I think that's my life's vocation and calling and was expecting like a high five. That's awesome. You're going to be great. And there was all of that. Um, but then almost immediately, my youth minister said, cool, there's a teenager in our youth group uh, who just found out that the woman who is like his mother has stage four cancer and is almost certainly going to die. He's devastated. You feel called into ministry. Uh, how about you go spend some time with that teenager. And I was like, this is not, this is not the like camp high I was anticipating having if you're walking down an aisle, uh, to do this. And, and I'm still to this day, like, I don't know. I was like, I guess I was probably like, oh, he's, he's called my bluff. I don't know. Um, but, um, and I remember walking over to this teenager and the teenager was a part of my youth group, but I was a part of like a youth group of several hundred people, so I did not know this person very well. Uh, and I remember just praying, like, God, I don't know what's about to happen. I've never done anything like this in my life, uh, but I need you to show up or this is about to go really, really badly. Uh, and I still can't tell you really what happened in that conversation. I think I just sort of blacked out. Uh, but, uh, but I do remember that at the end of it, uh, this, this teenager that I was, and I was, and I'm saying this teenager, I was also a teenager at the time, uh, uh, seemed to at least be encouraged by the time that we had spent together. Um, and I see here Peter consenting to God's presence. Uh, there are four consents that Thomas Keating talks about. The first, uh, is that in childhood, God asked us to consent to the basic goodness of our nature with all its parts. That though, yes, there is a Genesis 3 where there is sin and injustice and evil, that the first word about any of us is in Genesis 1, which is God's goodness that we are created in and invited to participate and to live in. And in our childhood as children, we are invited to consent with God, to surrender to God, to agree with God about the goodness of who we are and who we are created to be. Keating goes on to the second of those four consents, which is in early adolescence, God asks us to accept the full development of our being by activating our talent and creative energies. This is especially perhaps as we hit puberty and we become more social and we start to get more excited about other types of people who we might want to get to know and other ways we might want to express who we are, that we are invited by God to consent to this, 
to see uh, the goodness and to accept all the potential that God has placed within us. In early adulthood, God invites us to make a third consent, to accept the fact of our non-being and the diminutions of self that occur through illness, old age, and death. To realize that life is not going to always be about us, that we, our life is not about us, as some said, but we are to be about it and to be about others in community. And how do we consent to that? And that finally, of the fourth consent Thomas Keating talks about, is this transforming union that requires consent to the death of the false self. And the false self, he says, is the only self that we know. Uh, And all of this Thomas Keating envisions is through contemplative prayer. It's through sitting with God and allowing our illusions of all the ways we have tried to pursue happiness and identity and well-being to sort of fall away and to find at the core that God is saying, I have created you good and you are loved. There is this endless river of God's love that we can allow ourselves to be caught up in and to wash over us and that can flow to us and through us and to other people. And I don't know that Peter knew of Thomas Keating, who had not yet been born, and his four consents in that moment. But I do see in this text, when he has this beloved disciple of God and of the community there that is dead, and people have called him for a specific reason, hoping for something other than what is happening, that there was a lot that Peter realized if if this is going to happen, I I am going to have to be in a surrendered, still, open space where if if she doesn't get up right now, that that's not about me and my ego. I'm not some failed disciple. Uh, And if God does do something extraordinary and radical, that I also don't make that about me and my ego and my story and just allowing in that moment a consenting to God. As we consent to God's presence, how is the mystery of God's love inviting a yes from you? How can we show up to God's love and God's presence in the world? How might you become aware of God's love flowing to you, even in ordinary moments? And finally, as we grow good together, we're also invited to leaving a legacy of love and liberation In Acts 9, 41 through 42, we read, So he gave her his hand and helped her up, and then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So Peter has consented to God and opened to see what's going to happen here. New life springs forth in Tabitha. She's awake and now I got to be like, okay, now come back in. (laughs) But I don't think it was about Peter in that moment, right? It's, It's all about, wow, God has done something that we would have never expected in the face of this incredible setback to our community and to our world. Uh, in the 1970s in Chile, uh, Salvador Allende was, uh, democratically elected, but was a socialist, and our government, our being the United States, uh, was not particularly thrilled about that and helped to overturn uh, that. And so uh, Augusto Pinochet rose to power uh, during that time and began to use incredibly repressive uh, force 
towards the civilians. The tens of thousands of people um, were shot at, were tortured, uh, fa- endured all kinds of abuse, and several thousand, in the range of about 3,000 people, were disappeared. They were never heard from again. People didn't know what had happened to them. And you can see in some of these slides some of the images behind me of that happening. And so the the wives and the sisters and the mothers of many of these disappeared who were protesting against the abuses and violence of the Pinochet regime uh, began to protest themselves. And part of how they did this was that through the Catholic Church, uh, there was this organization for peace that started saying, let's take uh, this art form where we do sackcloth and normally would have just very beautiful pastoral scenes and images of Chile. And let's turn this into a way that we are going to weave our story, our collective story of lament and protest and draw attention to the injustice. And you can see in some of the images uh, behind me, I have, there's a couple slides of several of these examples. And they would just be simple, uh, but also incredibly beautiful. And not only would these groups that gathered together uh, practice and learn this art, but they would also be sharing in their collective grief work together while they were doing it. Oftentimes, the people who had disappeared were the people who were in charge of uh, being the sole breadwinners in their households. And so they all then began to sell these globally and were able to make money to be able to sustain their families uh, during this significant time of transition. And as these went out and went globally, it drew attention to the injustices, to the evil uh, that was happening there. It is a beautiful picture for me of what I believe was happening through Tabitha in this community in Acts. There were these women who were marginalized, who felt like the society that they lived in had forgotten them, did not invest them with the same rights and responsibilities and power that they might otherwise have. And they said, we're not going to be able to use the tools of our oppressors to dismantle this. We are going to have to rely on one another and the creative goodness of God to show up and do something through us that we cannot do on our own. We are going to have to join our uniqueness together to offer one another healing and hope, but not just some sense of it's going to get better pat on the back, a real sense of how do we begin to not only confront and expose evil and injustice where it is and offer nonviolent protests to it. But how do we also then begin to take care of the needs among us that the larger society is neglecting? And through that, there is this legacy of love and liberation that flew, that flowed through Tabitha and into her community because Tabitha's going and likely has, I'm assuming, uh, died since then again, right? Like Peter's not called in every, you know, it's like, oh no, it happened again. Peter, get back, get back, get back. And for each of us, the time that we have here on earth, that we have in community with one another, we know there is some expiration date. And so how are we living and joining together in community in a way that offers love and liberation, not just for us and for our small circle in this moment, 
but that has a legacy that can go beyond us into the world. I want to invite us as we close our time to pray together Psalm 23. Uh, we've already sung it uh, earlier today. Uh, and it's a psalm that's all about the ways that God shepherds us. And I think in our passage, we can see Peter as a good shepherd. I think we can definitely see Tabitha as an incredibly good shepherd to her community. Hopefully we can see Jesus' life, his resurrection hope flowing from both of these disciples in a powerful way in the story. And that good shepherding happens in the challenging times, in those darkest valleys, as well as in those moments of hope. There is this verse that we'll read, right, that talks about God preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And I used to have such an individualistic mindset for that. I used to have kind of, if you remember in Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, towards the very end, when they're having like the crazy duel with Darth Maul, they get to these doors or these gates that close and there's like a force field between them. And Qui-Gon Jinn just sort of like sits down. He consents to God's presence in the force and he's like meditating and Darth Maul is like, ah, you know, staring him down. And that used to be sort of my presence for like my picture for the table, the presence of my enemies. Like, oh yeah, I'm sort of just showing off. Like you're right here, enemy, but I'm just going to go to town. I'm having some good ramen because yeah, God's got my back. But we're invited to a table of reconciliation, a table where our enemies are invited to acknowledge if whatever injustice, whatever evil, whatever sin they have been participating in, and we are invited to acknowledge that for ourselves as well, and to be reconciled to God and to one another. God invites us to trust that the same goodness of Jesus that we see in Tabitha and Peter can be seen in each and every one of us if we are opening our lives to growing good together. So if you would join me in praying as we say aloud Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Amen.